You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our first guest today is the director of the Cannabis Economics Group and an economist in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California, Davis, where he studies the legal and illegal cannabis markets with a focus on the effects of regulations and retail prices. Our second guest is the Frank H. Buck, Jr., professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California, Davis, and the director of the University of California Agricultural Issue Center. He participates in research, teaching, and directs an outreach program related to public issues facing agriculture. Their latest book is titled, Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Robin Goldstein and Dr. Daniel Sumner. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, I wanted to start off by asking you both to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about how this book came about. Sure. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, so I first... Uh, came to UC Davis uh, because I was I had an interest in wine economics. I, I, I studied food, wine, and beer, but my main focus was wine uh, and the wine industry. And I was interested in prices um, and, and why people were willing to pay hundreds of dollars for bottles that they couldn't tell apart in blind tastings from cheap bottles. And so I, was int- I became interested in retail prices and studying economics of that. Uh, Dan and I started um, working with the California, what was then called the Bureau of Cannabis Control about six years ago before uh, uh, weed was recreationally legalized in California. So we, um, and, and, and a lot of my work then, since then has focused on cannabis. It's been a super interesting uh, topic to study. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of good data out there on the illegal market and what the market looked like before legalization. And so there's a lot of challenging research questions and important work to be done to try to understand how this market develops, that it's, that's still in its infancy. And I come to the economics of cannabis after uh, uh, decades of looking at uh, agricultural markets and food markets uh, broadly, but everything from tobacco to cotton. And I've written papers about uh, uh, many agricultural commodities, uh, those that are grown in California, think carrots and wine grapes. Uh, but all, And Robin and I have written papers on carrots and wine grapes together. Uh, but I've also, uh, as I say, looked at, at uh, global markets for agricultural commodities and especially uh, uh, what are known as farm programs or, and regulation of, of those commodities and, and especially the foods that go with them. So it was natural uh, uh, as cannabis evolved and moved more and more into the legal framework to look at cannabis. And Robin's absolutely right. It's a fascinating industry for people that are just interested in, in how, do, how, how does economic regulation work? It's a case study, if you will. It's also independently important just because uh, it's, there's a lot of, lot of resources involved, a lot of, lot of uh, money, especially in, in the cannabis market. And we thought uh, in particular in that market, there was a lot of misunderstanding about the role of regulation. There was also a lot of hype uh, as there often is when a market is fairly new, as there is lots of hype around other uh, food and agricultural markets. Robin mentions wine is one where there's uh, a good bit of hype about product qualities, for example. 
Yeah, that I, I absolutely agree with. I think regardless of your political bent, um, it is, you know, you can't deny this is a, a absolutely fascinating topic from an economics perspective. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking you guys a bit about the history of legal weed. To me, um, like I'm sure many others, the criminalization of weed has, has been baffling. Um, it doesn't make you more violent like PCP. It's virtually impossible to overdose on. It's been used for m- millennia. And even the adverse health impacts seem to be significantly less than other legal substances like um, cigarettes. Yet the United States has it listed as a Schedule One controlled substance. So can you tell us a bit about how weed came to be illegal and what impacts criminalization has had? That you, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, there were two big kind of uh, important moments um, in that history. The first being uh, when the U.S. government first made weed illegal in the 1930s, there was a senator named Harry Anslinger who had a big role in that. And, and we're not uh, necessarily experts on the legal history, and there's some good books written about that. But uh, often these kind of movements uh, move in the strength of like one or two or three powerful people. And 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 uh, this guy Anslinger and, and a few of his colleagues um, just launched this incredible PR campaign putting up, it was called Reefer Madness was, was kind of the nickname of that campaign. And some of the posters that uh, talked about, you know, would show, it, and it was a really anti-Mexican racist movement. It was, uh, they were trying to identify weed with uh, Mexican immigrants and saying that they were, it was causing them to do violent acts. And that, a lot of the propaganda centered around that with like depictions of Mexicans wearing sombreros and smoking weed and committing violent acts. Um, and and that's they, that's when they named it marijuana. The, the reason they named it marijuana and, and all the federal laws was to identify it with Mexicans. And that's one of the reasons in the book we use the word weed to talk about weed rather than uh, that word, which is which kind of uh, originated as a slur. Um, the the reefer madness kind of calmed down a little bit in the around war, uh, World War II, and then into the fifties and sixties. It was it was not being. Um, made into like a big political issue. But then Richard Nixon came uh, came around in the 60s and into the 70s and 1970 uh, passed this Controlled Substances Act that, and, 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 and some uh, laws that actually punished other countries, not just not only did he tighten weed law in the U.S. and, and made it into a bigger crime uh, federally and then kind of the states followed suit, but he also imposed it on other countries um, by through through kind of trade pressure. Uh, saying we won't trade with you, or uh, uh, if in certain ways, if you don't uh, also make punish uh, simple possession of weed with stiff penalties, um, and the the activism that you know has been going on for thirty, forty years now that uh, has finally culminated in in this kind of rapid legalization around the U.S. in the last few years uh, was has, for a long time has been driven uh, just really by the desire to get people out of prison who they believe are unjustly there, people who've been taken away from their families. And the most important thing for the activists is just freeing people who've been in, uh, imprisoned for something uh, that shouldn't be an imprisonable offense. And so a lot of we say we talk about in the book and can legal we win. Um, we have a couple of chapters where we talk about how, um, you know, the, the force of activism is so driven by just getting people out of jail that you, you kind of end up with some legislation that's thrown together that where you have to make a lot of compromises to different interested parties where we end up creating an unworkable system. So you, you achieve the aim of getting people out of prison, but then you end up with a mess that you've got to clean up later with the, the, the way the rules are set up and, and how hard it is for people to get into the legal industry. Okay, um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is the legal versus illegal conundrum you discuss in the book. So you guys talk about how in places like California, regulatory constraints make legal weed significantly more expensive than black market illegal weed. 
um, legal and illegal weed are virtually indistinguishable to consumers, as I understand it, who face no penalty regardless of how they obtain it. So, however, we don't see the same thing happening with black market alcohol or cigarettes. So tell us a bit about the economics that play with the legal versus illegal weed situation and why, why we don't see the same thing with other substances and what, if anything, state regulators should be doing differently. Yeah, and let me clarify, the, the conundrum uh, really is everywhere in the United States and Canada, for that matter. That is to say, every place we know of uh, in this part of the world uh, that, that has uh, uh, allowed legal weed to be uh, regulated and uh, provide licenses and all of those sorts of things that brought it into the legal market more thoroughly uh, creates uh, this complication that uh, legal businesses are taxed and regulated and illegal businesses not. And uh, cannabis is uh, cheap and easy to hide. It's cheap and easy to haul, uh, and uh, get, and and is is uh, fairly easy to grow uh, in places where people don't find you. And and uh, that seems to facilitate. Now, let me say there are other substances, whether it's heroin or fentanyl or or uh, or opiates, uh, opiate tablets that are even cheaper and easier to haul around and to hide and, and the like. And, and they also have been very hard to keep in the legal realm. Now, uh, uh, cannabis is now unique in the sense that it's legal for the users in many places in the United States. That is legal by uh, state measures, and the feds have said they're not going to enforce it. Uh, and for the most part, they don't. But it does uh, have, have this challenge. and. One of the first things we did five or six, seven years ago when Robin and I started looking at this was draw on a friend of ours who'd uh, written a book about uh, the Napa Valley wine industry and its transition from prohibition to legalization. And we had Jim uh, help us by thinking through the parallels with uh, the end of prohibition. And the one thing we learned from that is that it took a decade or so. Uh, but it was fairly quick that most alcohol went to be mostly legal, not not completely, but mostly. And we all know stories about, you know, uh, bootleggers and Baptists in the southern part of the United States, where the more you put on restrictions, the better better off the uh, illegal industry uh, did. And so we it, consistent with that, uh, we point out that the more you have complications in and, and this is throughout the United States and Canada, it's complicated and costly uh, to get a license to grow the stuff. A lot more co complicated and costly in some places than others. And, and, and we go into that. Uh, uh, Vermont, which legalized it, but still hasn't figured out a way to allow anybody to make a legal sale versus uh, Oklahoma, where it took 11 hours before they opened the first legal shop, for example. And, and that's and Vermont still hasn't accomplished that in four and a half years. Yeah, so it's it's uh, you you know they may say, gee, we've got a law that says it's legal, but they don't have a law that says anybody can sell it legally. And what we point out is that doesn't mean there's no weed in Vermont. There obviously is, presumably about as much weed in Vermont as there is in any place else, but it just can't be legal. Oklahoma, however, made it easy to get your license. But they have taxes, fairly substantial taxes, 
They have regulations on how it can be sold. And for example, uh, consumers in Oklahoma are not allowed to possess weed unless they have a medical permit. Now, it's not too hard to get a medical permit, uh, but still, uh, they're not devoid of, of regulation. So, you know, if I don't need to bother, if I don't bother to get a, a, a medical permit in Oklahoma, I'm just as illegal possessing the weed, whether I bought it from the guy down the street in the mall or I bought it from the guy who knows a guy who, who was on the corner in front of the mall. So there's no place that's really solved this dilemma that we know of. But our point is the more you restrict, the more regulations you put on and taxes, um, the harder it is for the legal side of the industry to compete with their, their competitors. And the last thing, and Robin has uh, some stuff to add on this, but the last thing I'll say is many of the regulations and taxes that the legal weed industry pays are the same one that every other food or agricultural industry pays. So, so for example, legal weed farmers, there's a whole long list of pesticides they can't use and almost nothing they can use because it's really, it's purer than organic parsley is what I like to say. I, there's almost nothing approved to be used on cannabis. Well, lots of farmers face challenges with pests and lots of regulations on what pests they can use. The same with paying your workers. If you hire somebody, if you're legal, you've got to go through workman's compensation and you pay employment tax and you pay social security tax and on and on. And you better provide uh, 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 an approved potty so that those people can use the bathroom, et cetera, just someplace to wash their hands. None of that does an illegal guy do. So it's not just cannabis specific regulations. There's a whole lot of things about legal that, most of us don't think much about because we live a legal life. But particularly if you were transitioning from an illegal business to a legal one, uh, the, the reaction of lots of, of growers and others in the retail business was, what do you mean? I've never heard of this. What do you mean I have to provide a bathroom for my workers? Can't they go outside like I do? The answer is, no, that's not legal. Uh, Eddie, just to... to uh... Add one thing you you'd mentioned the tobacco um, and alcohol industries and and one interesting question is why isn't there a lot of you know you don't have an illegal tobacco market uh, that's very big to speak of competing with legal tobacco even though you have very heavy regulations and taxes on tobacco that drives the price way up so you see this legal and illegal competition when the price difference is big enough like with weed if you can get a, an eighth for twenty dollars uh, on the illegal market and the same quality product would cost $40 on the legal market. That's a really substantial, uh, 20 bucks means, means a lot to a lot of people. And that's a substantial savings. And it's going to uh, result in real stiff competition between those two markets. In tobacco, uh, in New York City now, the cost of a, of a pack of cigarettes is $18 at a bodega. And so I think I've, I've, I've heard some anecdotal reports that there's an illegal tobacco market kind of reemerging where you can get cheap cigarettes that people bring in from other countries that, that aren't subject to the same so as New York City tax and, and whatnot. Right. Okay. So is it just a, a time issue then? Um, like, for example, uh, Dr. Sumner mentioned how when um, prohibition was lifted that we had um, bootleg alcohol for a, a period of time um, that was still quite popular. And then as the industry grew and matured, um, you know, we, we no longer see that sort of thing happening. So do you think um, that as time goes on and, um, you know, regulators become more adept um, in 
you know, um, legal weed dispensaries or whatever start to grow and expand that, um, the, the illegal weed market will start to shrink. Uh, start to shrink, maybe fade away. We don't see it but without something radical happening. And, and, uh, Robin makes a good point about smuggling cigarettes. One of the first papers I wrote as a very young economist when I was teaching in North Carolina was about the cigarette smuggling industry. And my favorite case there was uh, the case of Massachusetts, where at that time had the wildly exorbitant uh, tax of about 30 cents a pack. And New Hampshire was zero. A pack of cigarettes cost a buck uh, in, in Massachusetts and cost 70 cents or less in New Hampshire. And there was a massive shift such that if you looked at the data, you thought uh, people and you attributed sales in New Hampshire to people in New Hampshire, you would have thought they were smoking uh, 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 two at one time plus one for each ear. I mean, it was impossible how much uh, how many cigarettes were being sold in the state of New Hampshire, even for a 30 cent tax difference, like a 30 percent tax difference. Well, now with but but there is a big one difference between. Uh, cannabis and tobacco is that the legal tobacco business, the cigarette manufacturing business in particular, is massively efficient. So that so that those cigarettes are by uh, this is from somebody that's never smoked. So I, what do I know? But they are very high quality in the sense that there's no impurities. If they kill you, they're killing you for reasons you ought to know. It's not because there's impurities or other problems with the product. And the illegal cigarette industry just doesn't have that history. They may be developing it now. And in particular, in a place like New York City, where 90% of the cost is taxes, uh, they are subject to substantial amounts of smuggling. Yeah, they're probably just smuggling them from, you know, Vermont or Pennsylvania. Yeah, near, or nearby uh, New Hampshire, New nearby Hampshire. jurisdictions yeah. that don't have... Uh, yeah, probably Saturday New Hampshire, not Vermont. Yeah, or Indian reservations. Yeah, that's a that's a, and we know there are brands that are cheap brands that are sold in those places as well. But 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 the difference with alcohol is really the bulkiness and again the efficiency of the legal alcohol industry. And there the taxes and the regulations are much more moderate uh relative to uh, what they are in in and finally the long history. If, if you'll recall, uh, alcohol was legal forever and then illegal for a decade or so, and then, then, then legal again. And the infrastructure of the legal industry didn't really completely collapse. It was, it was downgraded and degraded a lot, but it didn't completely collapse. Whereas in cannabis, we're, we're now in the United States anywhere, something like 50 years of having had severe federal restrictions and a legal cannabis that's the new industry and the illegal cannabis that is the traditional industry. We expect looking forward for the legal industry to get better and better and the product to get cheaper and cheaper, but it, it really can't overcome, it, it, as far as we can see, uh, the very large regulatory and tax barriers. And I emphasize the regulatory barriers uh, for both producers and consumers. All right. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so next I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about federal weed legalization. So obviously criminalization at the federal level has had a number of extremely silly effects 
um, such as weed dispensaries being forced to operate in cash because they can't get bank accounts and being unable to deduct um, certain expenses on their taxes like any other business. Um, however, as I understand it, federal legalization may not be the be-all, end-all, perfect solution, um, depending on how Washington goes about it. So I wanted to ask you guys what the best case scenario for federal legalization would look like and get your predictions on what will actually happen on a federal level vis-a-vis -vis taxation and regulation when weed is finally legalized. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to use I'm going to steal a phrase from Dan. Dan likes to say, uh, if cannabis were regulated like kale, that would be a that would be a success story for uh, the legal industry. And uh, I think. Uh, that's very important federally because the, uh, there's already these onerous taxes and regulations at, at the state level that have been imposed uh, differently in different places. If you add, if you end up with a form of federal legalization where you add another layer of tax, federal taxes like you have with alcohol uh, or, um, and or a federal regulations about um, things people, you know, compliance things people have to do beyond what they have to do at the state level. Uh, and federal inspections and so forth, federal licensing, then uh, that could really uh, diminish the size of the, the legal market. That could hurt uh, more than it helps if it takes a form that's, that adds another layer of, of stuff to comply with and, and, and new costs. Uh, if, the, if the federal government just merely descheduled it, meaning take it off schedule one, say it's no longer a federally banned substance, it's going to be treated like another agricultural product that's, that's not heavily regulated like kale, then you then you have states each kind of left to figure it out for themselves. As Dan mentioned, the longer the states have to do this, the better they get at it. It's Colorado and Washington right now, the first two states to legalize recreational, have the lowest prices in the country for weed, so they're the most competitive with illegal, and and, and the illegal market will uh, uh, be able to sh could could well shrink, and the legal market could grow over time when you have a combination of low prices and and minimal federal uh, intervention. I think a lot is made of these banking benefits, you know, like, but actually the, the reality is that there are banks serving cannabis uh, customers in, in almost every state where it's legal. There are a few banks in the state, they might have to pay some higher fees. You know, they're, they're a little bit uh, taken advantage of because it's a small niche market. And so the prices are higher for like banking services, but it's not really uh, in the grand scheme of things for when you look at all the costs of a cannabis company, the banking, the extra banking fees is not really that big a deal. And there aren't, you're not seeing a lot of federal raids of state of state uh, people who are complying with state law, so that threat's uh, I think started to diminish under Obama and is and is pretty low under Biden. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Dan if he wants to add a few things there. Yeah, uh, you you raised the issue of uh, the federal income tax, and let's just uh, that is a, a real a, a problem for any particularly the wholesale and retail companies. And just to clarify for the readers, the way it works is. They say, oh, well, uh, cannabis, uh, uh, weed, uh, even legal weed within the state, uh, and you're a legal store, you cannot treat a buying an a federally illegal substance as a cost. So you're a store, you buy a million dollars of weed, you sell it for a million and a half, uh, you're, that $500,000 pays the rent and your employees and everything else, but you've got to treat your net income to include the million dollars that you paid for the for the raw material that you bought, that for the packaged goods that you bought from the wholesale industry, because it wasn't considered a legal transaction from the federal government, which really makes um, a federal taxes impossibly high for those businesses. And uh, 
that that uh, makes no sense at all. And if uh, we we outline in the book, uh, uh, Justice Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court wanted to hear the case, uh, a wonderfully named uh, a case called Standing Akimbo, uh, where this company named Standing Akimbo uh, was suing the federal government, saying, wait a second, you can't, uh, on the one hand, essentially treat it as, as though we're legal in the sense of you don't do any enforcement. At the same time, you have these bizarre uh, tax laws, as well as banking laws, that treat it as though we're a pariah. So basically, make up your mind. And Thomas said the Supreme Court ought to hear this case. Well, uh, the rest of the court, or at least a majority of the court, disagreed with him. So that case will not be heard in the coming term. The one thing I would say generally about legalization, and you know, we could say first do no harm. And there really is, and this is just thinking of the national industry as a whole, federal legalization could destroy the legal industry, destroy it by making a few things better, but then add a bunch of federal regulations and federal taxes on top of what uh, companies already deal with, and not just at the state level, but at the local level. And here where I live, it's the Yolo County, which is the county I live in here in California, and the city that I live in, all of which, uh, both of which in this case, have a range of regulations and taxes that they lay on top of companies that uh, uh, are, are just inordinately complicated, if nothing else. You lay on top of that a bunch of inordinately complicated uh, federal regulations plus another bureaucracy to deal with. And uh, uh, a business's legal business will either say to heck with it, I'm out of here, uh, or stumble along trying to figure out a way to comply with this big mess. But it, it and uh, you asked for a prediction of what's likely to happen. And if it happens soon, uh, say in the next six months, uh, it's more likely to have be this complicated mess than anything else. But politics in the U.S. is something that uh, only Robin can predict. I certainly can't. And so I don't know what really is going to happen. I can't predict it either. But I would say another form it could take is medicalization, where it's it's legalized as a medicine federally, but not as a not in recreational form. And then you could have a different kind of mess where the, you know, farm industry gets involved and you have all the all the health care uh, uh, costs that get added, regulatory costs that get added to pharmaceutical products. Right. Um, okay. Um, so next, I wanted to ask about the potential import-export scenario as more and more of the world starts to legalize weed. Um, just like it's cheaper to produce weed in some parts of the United States than in others, um, I would assume the same is also true of the international market. So as weed becomes legal in more and more countries um, around the world in, in coming decades, I think it's fair to assume that consumers will be better off. But, but what do you think will happen to the weed industry in the United States? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Let's start with uh, a cross-state legalization that is likely to happen if the feds legalize it, then then you could trade it. As we know, uh, uh, companies in local jurisdictions, whether they're farms or retailers, uh, try to keep out the competition. Uh, that's a classic. So, for example, uh, you know, if you want to if you want to be a hair uh, a barber in California, we wouldn't want any imported barber from Arizona cutting your hair. So we have all kinds of rules about that. 
And it's possible that states will try to keep a bunch of trade barriers in place, even if legal uh, weed is legal uh, across the United States. And you're exactly right. The principle of comparative advantage will apply. Interestingly, it's very hard to figure out where weed will grow in terms of, of, of where it's going to be grown physically, that is cultivation, and where the manufacturing would be done. It's fairly cheap to haul. So, you know, this isn't bulky like uh, like uh, milk or something where it's mostly water. So it's processed right where it's produced. So you could you could find yourself growing weed, say, in Washington state where the price of electricity is low, not in California, because indoor weed is is perhaps the future. And California has record breaking electricity prices. So so you grow it in in uh, in Washington state and haul it to, uh, uh, say, Oklahoma to process it because they're friendly to manufacturing companies. And wage rates might be a bit lower for manufacturing. So we just don't really know. What we do know is the status quo will certainly not be there. And we know that we know that from looking at every other agricultural or manufacturing industry. And you raise a great point about the international competition. Weed is not climate sensitive, partly because a lot of it's grown in greenhouses and in indoors. Uh, it's not particularly climate sensitive, but but you've got to have reasonable farming conditions. And especially it's very labor intensive. So a state like Massachusetts with high wages or a state like California with high wages may find it difficult to compete for such a labor intensive uh, commodity. And you may well find, and wouldn't this be ironic, that uh, the last state in the country to legalize weed, I don't know, Alabama or someplace, ends up being the weed powerhouse because of relatively low wages and relatively efficient manufacturing, as they've shown in automobiles and other industries. I think on the international market, I'd, if I had to place a bet, it'd be on Mexico. Uh, they, they have... Uh, there, there, it is still true, in spite of what Dan said. You know, one of the advantages of greenhouses is you get five harvests, four or five harvests a year, as opposed to one. So there's a lot of advantages uh, with greenhouse in terms of making efficient use of your land. But in places where giant amounts, giant uh, swaths of land are pretty cheap and labor is pretty cheap, outdoor uh, might still uh, be uh, yield the cheap. You know, have have the cheapest uh, production costs at the low end. And I think that's where that's one place where Mexico is going to have a really um, strong position, as they do in, with uh, importing many other agricultural commodities to the U.S. You know, I agree with you, Robin, and and thank you for that. Because when it comes to a number of fruits and vegetables, avocados, for example, uh, Mexico, partly because of low cost labor and and available land and other resources but also because of really good management and, and talented, uh, efficient labor. They've done very well, and uh, U.S. consumers have uh, learned to trust Mexican products. They may not know they trust them, but they do. And, and that's everything from salad greens to strawberries to avocados. And, and so uh, I do see Mexico as being a place that could be a very uh, become a powerhouse in the weed business, and that would be ironic maybe we would start calling it marijuana again. That'd be social justice if they may end up uh, making most money of anyone. Yep, that'd be great. Okay. 
So um, we got a couple minutes left. Um, so I wanted to finish off by quickly asking if there was anything you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Uh, I, one thing I would, uh, one thing I would mention, I think that surprised me most as the pro we were involved in the process, um, uh, or we were observing the process, let's say, of of going from a California's pre-medical system to the medical system, to, to a regulated medical system, to a regulated recreational system. And there were all sorts of different laws and sets of regulations that were being, that were drafted separately and then were getting merged. And so things were constantly changing. One of the things that ended up being part of Prop 64, which is California's recreational legalization ballot question that passed in 2016, creating a legal system that started in 2018, uh, was so-called local control. And what local control means is that every city and county had the right to opt out of the legal recreational system They could, or medical system. They could just say, we don't want to have any producers in our county. We don't want to have any stores in our county, delivery services based in our county. You could get it delivered. So, so as a result of this, everyone said, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's going to be some impediment to the legal industry. It's not going to, you know, some places might ban it. What surprised everyone is that 70% of California's geographical area passed local prohibition. Um, and so they, they passed laws outlawing um, businesses, medical marijuana businesses that have been legal, legally operating for 20 years in their areas. They just took this as a, as a reason to ban it all because they didn't want recreational in their backyard. And so uh, that's, that's turned out to be one of the biggest uh, factors in that's, that's stopping the legal, legal weed from winning uh, this battle in California is, is just a big, they have, uh, illegal has a hundred percent of market share and growing and storefronts in, in, in a lot of counties and cities. Um, and no one really saw that coming. People thought maybe a few, uh, no one expected how many of these local places would just ban it. And let me just add uh, 10 seconds worth, uh, Adi. The, um, the role of, of uh, investment bankers and consultants and uh, what I would call the, uh, the get-rich uh, uh, money flooded into cannabis at a rate that surprised me because, and then has flooded out again and, and lost bundles in the process, which is another kind of poetic justice. And that surprised me, in, probably shouldn't have, but it just seemed to me, uh, who could think it was that easy to jump into a business and uh, 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 think you could compete in it by uh, putting fancy brands and, and uh, hire 10 consultants and a, and a half a dozen MBAs, and somehow there's some farmer down at the bottom of the thing uh, scratching the ground with sticks, and you were going to add cost to that and somehow make it all magic with fancy brand names. And it's sort of like dot-com stuff in lots of other places where you get a whole bunch of money flooding in and then flooding out. But uh, Robin uh, uh, has documented that a bit, and we we cover that in the book. But it's it's basically, you can't have a standard farm commodity support that much Uh that much infrastructure, if you will. Now, some of those brands will be fine. And as usual, uh, somebody's going my, to... My, my apologies, Dr. Sumner. Um, I, I think we're just about to be, be cut off. Um, okay. So thank you both so much for, for joining us on, on the show. Um, it, it's been a real pleasure. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.